So as I mentioned in my prayer, Romans chapter 4, we just had covered just the first couple of verses uh, last week. So we will, let me read those two verses again, kind of pick it up where we left off, and then we will uh, we'll continue on. So Romans chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, says, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So basically, as Paul writes this, he's been writing overall to show that all men are guilty before God, all men are accountable, and that all men are lost, and that no one can justly um, either accuse God of being unfair, and nobody has any good works with which they can promote themselves to with the Lord. Here, as Paul focuses on the Jewish believers, he wants them to understand that as they look back in their history to one of their great patriarchs, Abraham, Abraham was not saved by his works, even though he was a righteous man, uh, and they revered him as being one who did things right. He was saved the same way everybody else is saved, which is by faith. And he says here, if Abraham was justified by works, then he would have something to boast about. So we spent some time talking about that, and then we want to kind of move it into our day and age and, and where we are as people. Because it seems that too often both non-believers and sometimes believers uh, still, we, we kind of move back to our default position when it comes to talking about salvation, when it comes to talking about what happens to us when we die, are we going to go to heaven, are we going to go to hell? Uh, we still go back to our default position, which seems to be that we're hoping that we've done enough good works, that our good has outweighed our bad. And the Bible makes it clear that our good does not outweigh our bad. It never will outweigh our bad. But even if by chance we had more good works than bad, um, we still have missed the mark. Because the mark that God has said is not that we have more good works than bad, but that we only have good works and zero bad works. That we would be able to live perpetually, always, in perfect obedience to His law. Not just the moment that we find out about the law, but before we found out about the law, that we were already living perfectly, because that standard is what God has said. said. There was a survey that was done several years ago, and there's been several of these types of surveys done. But it says 48% of churchgoers, and that's a, a, a wide range. They, they may be Baptist, Methodist, Catholic. It could be just a wide range of people. Uh, but basically, 48% of churchgoers believe that if people are generally good or do enough good things for others, they will earn a place in heaven. I guess we could say maybe we, we wish that was true. Because in our minds, we think more people would make it. But it's not true. Uh, no one gets to heaven by doing even one good work. No one gets to heaven by doing a thousand good works. Nobody can do enough good things for others. It's just not going to happen. Because, again, the requirement that God has set is, is higher than that. It really is a, a perfect, a perfection of holiness and sanctification. Um, in another survey, this was done in 92, so several years ago, uh, one-third of those who were responding said that they were born-again Christians. But of those individuals, 54% of them said that all good people will go to heaven whether they have embraced Jesus Christ or not. So again, remember that the problem with that statement is there are no good people. Now again, we're not saying that everybody is a serial killer. What we're just simply saying is that the terminology 
necessary for one to be able to go to heaven is to be a good person means that you have always been good at all times in every single situation. That person doesn't exist. Um, Jesus Christ is the only way. That's what makes Christianity very unpopular. But if you think about it for just a moment, every religion, or at least almost every religion, believes that they exclusively have the truth. They believe that. They believe that they believe the right things about God. They believe that they have the right information about who God is and what his name is. They believe that if you don't believe as they believe, you're wrong and that you won't make it. So Christianity in that sense is no different than these others. Our founder, Jesus Christ, did make a very clear claim that he was the only way and there was no other way to the Father except only through him. And so as Christians, we again, we must embrace that truth. Again, 25% of all those who said they were born again said that while Jesus was on earth, he sinned like other men. Remember that if Jesus had sinned, one sin, whether by action or just in his thought, then he would have had to have died for his own sin, no one else's. He, would, he could not be our substitute. So the sinlessness of Jesus is of great importance. And the moment that that's denied, there is no salvation, there's no heaven, there's only hell for all people. So if you are a believer, we need to recognize that yes, Jesus, be, you know, the second person of the Trinity became a man, but he lived perfectly as a man from birth until death. He perfectly obeyed the law of God in every way and in every thought. And so he did not sin. So to claim or to say you believe that Jesus died, uh, sinned is to call God a liar, is to say that the Bible is wrong and that Jesus has lied. Uh, and... Uh, that's, that's kind of where you would be on that. Many Christians do think that after believing in Christ for their eternal destiny, meaning that you, you've placed your faith in, in Christ and you want to go to heaven, uh, we fall back into this trap of spending the rest of our lives trying to gain a sense of God's approval, to gain his love by hard, exhausting, committed, dedicated le uh, labor. Remember that when we become believers, we are accepted immediately into the family of God by God. We are accepted because of Christ, because of all that Christ has done. And there's nothing you and I have to do or can do to earn God's favor. We already have it. We have it because we have been adopted by him into his family. It, and it's now automatic. In the same way that when you brought your child home from the hospital or when you adopted a child, the moment they became your child, uh, they had access really to your goodness. They didn't have to do anything to gain your approval. They already had your approval because you love them and you care for them. And that's how it is for believers. But sometimes we get stuck in that trap that we have to be good enough uh, or that we have to somehow earn. Part of that may be because we become much more aware of our sin, and that's a good thing. Uh, but we have to remember, that, again, that God is not thinking like us. He's already told us and explained to us how it is that he will accept us. So we really, we really need to make sure we get this right. Uh, because it's fundamental to everything else that we believe as Christians. And if we don't get this right, then we're going to go off in some area. And it's going to affect our behavior, our decisions. It may affect us emotionally and definitely will affect us uh, spiritually. So again, we need to remember that we can never win God's love by anything that we do. Um, because if that was the case, we would never know when we've done enough. Uh, we can't earn the gift of love. Love is not something that's earned. If you earn it, it's not love. It's something else. Um, uh, if we 
we receive the gift by faith. And then because we have received this gift by faith, I then obey what God has said. I now want to do that. I don't do it perfectly, but that's the general direction of, of my life. That's the general direction of your life, to live in such a way that our lives please God. So now look at verse 3 of Romans 4. Verse 3 says, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So Paul is now going to take some time and talk about this great man, the man who was uh, the first Jewish person. He was the one that God made the covenant with. Uh, God promised Abraham that he would make him the father of a great nation. Actually, he said he'd be the father of many nations, but in particular, the Jewish nation, he is the father. And this individual is, is held in very high esteem in the Jewish community. And Paul, because he, he was a rabbi, he knew their beliefs and their teachings very well. He understood that Abraham held a very, very special place uh, in, their, in their hearts, in their minds, in their adoration. And, you know, the, the idea was if I could be as good as Abraham, perhaps I'll make it. And he wants people to know that if you could be as good as Abraham, you still wouldn't make it because Abraham didn't make it that way. All right, Abraham made it the way everybody else did. And that's by God's grace and it's by the exercise of faith. William Newell has a commentary in the book of Romans. It's called Romans Verse by Verse. It's an older commentary. And he says this, To discover that the greatest saints have no other standing than the weakest saints is a lesson that is difficult for us, for all of us. So now for the Jew to find that great Abraham has nothing in the flesh but must be justified by simple faith like any sinner is a great shock. There was no honor, no merit in Abraham's believing the faithful God who cannot lie. The honor belonged to God. When Abraham believed God, he did the one thing that a man can do without doing anything. God made the statement, the promise, and God undertook to fulfill it. Abraham believed in his heart that God told the truth. There was no effort here. Abraham's faith was not an act. It's an attitude. His heart was turned completely away from himself to God and his promise. This left God free to fulfill that promise. Faith was neither a meritorious act by Abraham, nor a change of character or a change of nature in Abraham. He simply believed God would accomplish what he had promised. And that's where we sometimes get confused. Is we, you know, we talk about changing as believers. We talk about our character becoming different. But we don't, we don't strive to, to change our character so that God will fulfill his promises to us or so that God will save us or so that we can remain saved. That, does, that aspect of it doesn't matter. We are saved on the word of God. He has given his word. He's given his promise and we're saved. Now that I am saved and I fully belong to Christ, I want to and I God works on changing who I am, my, my nature, my character. But again, we just simply believe God. We just trust what he says. And if we do that, then we're saved. And that is salvation. It is in one sense so simple. It's very easy. Uh, it doesn't require anything. At the same time, it's so difficult because it requires everything. When, you, when you're placing your faith and trust in God, you're giving your whole being to God. And we want to hold on to some parts of it. You know, we want to have control. We want to have a say in certain things. Our pride is just extremely deep uh, and extremely strong. And so something so easy shouldn't be so unbelievably difficult, but it is. Uh, again, remember what God said to Abraham. He says, in thee or in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. 
So Kenneth Wiest, he was another guy. He's dead now. He wrote a, a word study on the New Testament. It's, it's four volumes. It's really very good. And he says this about Abraham's act of faith. It was the act of Abraham placing himself in such an attitude of trust in and acceptance of God's blessings that made it possible for God to bestow righteousness upon him. It is like the proffered hand of a drowning man that makes it possible for the lifeguard to save him. There's nothing meritorious in the act of a drowning man stretching out his hand in order to be saved. It is the efficient medium through which he is saved. Thus, the act of faith on the sinner's part is not meritorious, but only if only the efficient medium through which God is able to save him. The it, therefore, refers to the outstretched hand of faith of a sinner reaching out for salvation that God grasped in his, uh, in his own to lift him out of the mire of sin and place him upon the rock of Christ Jesus. So when you and I became believers, that's what happened. We reached our hand out, but we, we didn't even reach out and grab the hand of God. He, he grabbed ours. So it, all the work is of him. So we have to. It, it's hard for us to really grasp that because we tend to think that we've done something when we place our faith in God, that we either mustered that faith up or you know, we, we, we did something for God to respond to us. And, and, we, and it gets difficult as we kind of describe what took place because sometimes there's language that we use that may sound that way. But when we kind of boil it down to brass tacks and get down to what has taken place, we exercise faith, we exercise belief, we just simply exercise trust. I, I didn't have to go anywhere. I didn't have to do anything. I have to change anything. I believe. And I continue to believe. And if you're a believer, you continue to believe. And, and that's what Paul is getting at. And, re, and again, like I said, we may think that um, this is just so easy and it's so simple, but so many don't get this. God put to Abraham's account or he placed on deposit for him or he credited to him righteousness. You remember that's how we talked about uh, our inheriting or our receiving the righteousness of God. It's, it's a bookkeeping term. And so Christ's righteousness was placed on my account, and it now belongs to me, and it wiped out my debt. So the actual payment has it made. The actual bestowing of righteousness has uh, um, been consummated. Um, now for Abraham, he, he believed what God said. Christ had not yet come. Uh, it had not yet been consummated because Jesus had not yet paid the penalty. He had not yet been raised from the dead. But Abraham believed God. He believed, Whatever God was going to do, he believed what God was going to do for him. So Abraham possessed righteousness in the same manner as a person would possess a sum of money placed in his account in a bank. Now, since the resurrection, Old Testament saints share with New Testament believers the possession of Christ as the righteousness in which they stand, guiltless and righteous for time and for all of eternity. So again, they were placing their faith in God as we place our faith in God. The difference is now history has played itself out and Christ has come, been crucified, been buried, and has been raised again. And so we are placing our faith in what God has done. Abraham placed his faith in what God was going to do. Uh, D.L. Moody said this. He said, The thief had nails through both hands so that he could not work, and a nail through each foot so that he could not run errands for the Lord. He could not lift a hand or a foot toward his salvation, and yet Christ offered him the gift of God, and he took it. 
Christ threw him a passport and took him into paradise. Remember, there were two thieves that were crucified with Christ. And one asked Jesus to remember him when he went, came into his kingdom. In fact, he even told the other uh, thief to stop mocking him, because they both had been mocking him. He asked him to stop mocking him and said, can't you see this is the Christ? Meaning this is the anointed one, or this is the Messiah. So at some point he believed. Uh, and again, as D.L. Moody points out, the man was nailed to the cross. There was nothing he could do. But he received that marvelous gift, and it was promised to him by Christ, because he said that he would be with him that day in paradise. So let me read once again verses 1-8 through eight of Romans 4, and we'll continue our discussion. So what then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trust him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. And blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So again, as the scripture says, And it, meaning his faith, the instrument, was counted or reckoned or it was imputed to him as righteousness. So that word counted or, re or reckoned, it's uh, logozomai is the Greek word, means credited. It means to take something that belongs to someone else and credit it to another's account. So let's say I, I was a multimillionaire and you and I both go to the bank and I give the bank permission and they take a million dollars out of my account so this is what belongs to me, and they're going to credit it to your account. The money's in your account. It's yours. You have it. That, that's what this term is. That's what this term means. It was used in the secular world as a bookkeeping term. Uh, it described that you made an entry into an account book. And again, the purpose of the entry was to make a permanent record that can be, can be consulted. So if you were unsure, like let's say you didn't believe that that money was really transferred into your account. Well, the same thing. you could do the same thing. The, the ATM kind of can serve as an account book. You put your card in, check your balance, one million, and then whatever money you had in there before. Uh, so it, it is evidence that this is that the transaction has actually taken place. And the money is now at your disposal to do whatever you desire or whatever you want. So again, this counted or this crediting or this imputing, it's a one-sided transaction. Right? There's nothing that you have to do. In fact, um, if I was going to go to the bank and I was going to credit your account, if I had your account number, there's nothing for you to do. I just, I can just put the money in your account. You don't have to be there. You don't have to sign for it. You don't have to say, I agree. You don't have to do any of that. Christ knows us. And when he seeks to save us and, and impute his righteousness to us, he has the right to do that. He, he has our account number. And he, and he can do that. So again, Abraham did nothing to warrant Christ's righteousness. God just credited it to him when he believed. God took Christ's righteousness and credited, to, credited it to Abraham. Uh, that transaction occurred because Abraham believed what God said. So Paul here is using Abraham to illustrate that when he trusted God, his moral and his spiritual books were balanced, so to speak, and that it was not because of something Abraham did or did not do. So even though Abraham was a man of great faith and did and obeyed God and did some incredible things, stepped out on faith and following what God said, you know, these acts of obedience that he did, the blessings that God poured upon him, 
None of those, and what he did with those blessings, none of that, those things that he did put him in right standing with God. God spoke to him. He believed God. That was it. John MacArthur says this about all of this. He says, even though Abraham's repeated disobedience was sinful, and we forget that about Abraham, as great as he was, he disobeyed God often. Even though Abraham's repeated disobedience was sinful and brought harm to himself and even to others, God even used that disobedience to glorify himself. Those acts of disobedience testify that contrary to rabbinical teaching, Abraham was sovereignly chosen by God for his own divine reasons and purposes, and not because of Abraham's faithfulness or righteousness. So again, that's where some people get caught up in this whole idea of works. They think that God, again, is is granting you salvation because of what you've done, or perhaps because of what you're going to do. Since God knows everything, you know, some people think that God knew you would be a good Christian, and so he, he picked you to save you. That That's not how that works. God chooses to save us for his own reasons. He hasn't told us what they are, except that he is love and kind, and we're so grateful that he chose us to save us. So again, Abraham was chosen by God's sovereign elective grace, not because of his works or even because of his faith. Again, his faith was acceptable to God only because God graciously reckoned or counted it, it as righteousness. So when I'm trusting in the righteousness of Christ that pleases God, I'm obeying what God said. I am, I am, I am doing what he's commanded. And by trusting in Christ, then his righteousness becomes mine. So even the faith that we exercise is not even the basis or the reason for justification. It's the channel through which God works. Because remember, that faith that we're exercising, that's a gift from God. I, before I became a believer, and before you became a believer, we could not muster up faith within ourselves to believe God. God had to move in our life and give us the faith to believe, to give us that ability to believe, because we were spiritually dead. It's... It's an incredible thing to think about uh, because if we were left to ourselves, not only is it impossible for us to try to conjure up faith within ourselves to trust in Christ, we wouldn't want to. We won't do that. So what happens is sometimes, you know, we've been believers, many of us have been believers for a while. And so faith, not that it's easy, but it seems automatic. It's almost because, you know, when we think about it, well, of course I trust Christ. Well, of course I believe the Bible. And it's been that way for so long that it's difficult for us to remember a time when we didn't have faith. Even if it was 10 years ago. I can't really remember what that was like for me emotionally or psychologically. I I kind of assumed that, well, of course I would have chosen Christ. But the Bible corrects that and tells me that I, I would not have done that. So again, faith is simply a convicted heart. You're convicted of your sin. Reaching out, really pleading for God's mercy and reaching out for this gift that he has. Again, the righteousness that God demands, and that the, the word righteousness is used again a lot in Romans, and in particular Romans 4. Um, again, it is a righteousness that is demanded by God, and it is not that it is it, it does not conform to the standard of men. Right? It only conforms to the standard that God has set, which is in keeping with his holy character. So it's not a diminished righteousness. It's not the best kind of righteousness that we can produce. It must be holy and completely unique and genuine and perfect in every way. 
And so I, I can't produce that kind of righteousness. It must be given to me. Again, as sinners, before we became Christians, we have no righteousness. That would be acceptable to God. We just have to keep remembering that. We sometimes, we can become sentimental. Uh, let's say a young person passes away. And let's say we knew them and they were sweet and kind. And so we, we, we may say to others or say to ourselves, I just can't believe that God will let such a sweet, kindly person as so-and-so go to hell. Well, remember that if you that, that person was a non-believer and you knew them as sweet and kind, you only knew one side of them. God knows all sides of them. And even if they never displayed the ugliness that's within them, it was still there. Remember that God says that person was living in rebellion to God. There's no way, I guess, to really fathom that because it's so hard for us to see that in certain people. But God is making that declaration, not because he wants to be a mean ogre. He's, he's doing that because it's the truth. And he wants us to see ourselves for who we are and what we are. And again, that we need Christ. And if that person died as an unbeliever, that meant that they were so prideful, they refused to submit to God. Remember that what we've already covered in Romans, especially in chapter 1. No one dies without an excuse. No, no one I mean, no one dies with an excuse. No one, no one can uh, say that they didn't have a chance. No one can say they died in ignorance. They rejected that person. Every single person we know that's a non-believer dies rejecting Christ. They're rejecting the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's a, it's a harsh reality. And it's one that we need to embrace. Ho hopefully it will motivate us to share the gospel of Christ with others because we real, realize what dire straits that they're in. In Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, it reads this way, But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. So again, another passage that just slams the truth that we are wicked before we come to Christ, carried away by our sin, and that we cannot produce the kind of righteousness that God demands. But again, the good news with salvation, and what we've been talking about, is that God's given us His Word. He's given us His promise. When we respond to Him in faith or in trust, uh, against our name in his account book, he makes an entry that says, says in effect, that we now possess that righteousness. Our faith has been credited to us as righteousness. Some, some would say, and some have said, they've written about this, that this concept we have about salvation is crude. Um, but let me, uh, let me illustrate this way. What if you go to the bank tomorrow and you find out that someone... You don't know who they are, but someone has credited to your account a gift of $10 million. I'm pretty sure you wouldn't say that was crude. Pretty sure you'd be overwhelmed. You'd be floored. And you'd have a big old smile on your face. So, I think that if we understand what God has done for us in Christ, then, um, which is, again, much more valuable than worldly wealth, because $10 million is not going to allow you to live forever. Only Christ can do that. 
Again, back to our word uh, lagazomai, which again the, the word uh, um, which means to uh, um, account or impute uh, or credit us. Again, it means to reckon. Again, it means to take into account, to deliver, to de- to deliberate. Sorry, uh, it it implies also a process of reasoning. So the word. So as you think about that word, the fact that God has imputed to us His righteousness, He didn't do that unknowingly. He knew what we were. He knew that we were sinful. He knew that we were in in the midst of rebelling against Him, and He still chose to do that. So again, this isn't a blind act by faith. Uh, by uh, act, blind act by God, uh, this is one where he has full knowledge and he's he has reasoned through this, and this is what he wants to do as God. So that word then logozomai refers to a settled conclusion by careful study and reasoning, and thus, in short, a reasoned conclusion. It refers to the process of reasoning, which results in arriving at a conclusion, which is what we need, and then what, he, and then God meeting meeting that need. Again, it ca- conveys the idea of calculating and estimating. Um, the word impute or to put to one's account, again, is probably maybe the best translation. Uh, it does in, in the the word logozomai has in it a a root word which is related to the English term logic which deals with methods of valid thinking, reveals how to draw a proper conclusion from premises, and is a prerequisite of everything that we do when we think. So the idea here is that when God imputed Christ's righteousness to us, he, and of course he did this very quickly, God, God doesn't need time to think through things, um, but he came to the proper conclusion that we would never be able to produce our own righteousness, that we were totally and utterly helpless, and that if we were going to be saved, he would have to move and act. And thus he did. And so this was a reasoned, calculated act that he did on our behalf. So it's really quite amazing uh, when you think about that. Our salvation is just was not an afterthought uh, by God. Uh, it was what he intended to do. He, he, would, he, he put thought into it and, and planned this thing out. Paul uses the word logozomai in Romans 2 in addressing the religious, religious leaders who were looking down on pagans. In Romans 1, he asked, Do you suppose, or logozomai, do you reason uh, thus, O man, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things and do the same things, that you will escape the judgment of God? So there, when he says there, do you reason, uh, he's asking it in a, in a question form. And the idea there is that they didn't, they didn't logic this out. Because if they had, they would have realized that what they were condemning others of doing, they were doing themselves. And so they would not have condemned them. That's what he was getting at there. Romans chapter 2, verse 3. Paul's point is that uh, um, the moralist falsely calculates and comes to the wrong conclusion regarding his own sinfulness and guilt. So again, we ought to reason through this and logic it out, so to speak, and recognize what God, again, has done for us in the same way that, that he did. Logozomai then means to think about something in a detailed and logical manner, to reason about it, to ponder it, to finally draw certain conclusions through the use of reason. So I think just kind of looking at that really helps us to recognize that all that God has put into our salvation, uh, that again, it wasn't just a, a, a knee-jerk reaction, but it was a uh, drawn-out, reasoned, detailed pondering uh, that was done by God to 
do this and enact this on our behalf. Because again, we are the ones who are the recipients of all this. It's true, he gets all the glory, but we're the ones that get all the good things. You know, we get we get eternal life. We are adopted as his children into his family. We're the ones that are going to conquer death. Um, we're the ones that his spirit takes up residence within us. I mean, all these wonderful things take place as a result of what God has done. Uh, Logozomai was, a, again, I already told you it was a secular term that was used, but again, the purpose of the entry is to make a permanent record that can be consulted whenever needed. Uh, so for me, that kind of gives another, you know, I think there's many planks in the floor of that supports the truth of eternal security. Everywhere you look, when you, when you examine our salvation, over and over and over again with the words that God uses and the way those words are used, there's always that idea of permanency. There's always that idea that, that when it's done, it's, it's done. And, and it's, it's, it's uh, been dealt with. It's, it's a sealed thing. In the same way that God seals us with the Spirit to the day of redemption. No one can break that seal. The only thing, only conclusion we can come to for the individual who looks like they've become a Christian and they walk away from the faith is that that person never really trusted Christ. They may have spoken the language, you know, they may have spoken in Christian theological terms. They may have even changed for a while, which we know can happen to anybody in just living with a different group of people. We can change. You know, we see that happen in the jail all the time. Guys can become a model citizen in jail because there's an officer right there. Set him free, he's back to his old habits. So, in, in all the different ways that we look at this, and logozoma is one of those words, I believe, that helps us to recognize the thoughtfulness that was put into our salvation, this imputing of righteousness that God has done for us. And again, we see the permanency of what God has done. So in Romans 3, then, uh, what we have is this. Number one, Abraham believed God, and his act of faith was placed to his account in value as righteousness. Number two, he believed God and his act of faith was credited to him for righteousness. Number three, he believed God and his act of faith was computed as to its value and there was placed to his account, righteousness. However, Abraham's act of faith was not looked upon as, again, meritorious, meaning it, was not, it didn't earn him merit. God didn't owe him because of that. It was a channel with which God worked through. So, if you would now, uh, let's look at Romans chapter 4, verse 8. where um, Again, it says, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. In other words, uh, the man is called blessed, to whose account is no sin is charged. So, it doesn't mean he's not guilty. He's guilty. But, again, the righteousness of Christ has been attributed to my account. My account now has been paid in full. So, there's now no longer a debt of sin. I, I, the debt of sin is, is my death. I, I, the only way I can pay my, my debt of sin is, is to die uh, and, and be eternally separated from God. That's been paid by Christ. So there's no longer any sin on my account, even though I've committed sin. So if you back up then to verse 6, in trying to illustrate all of this, he says, Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works, all right, again, this imputation, the act of putting something to someone's account. And then we have the opposite of verse 8, where something is not put onto your account. Again, it's something, something that God has reasoned through. It's not a knee-jerk reaction. So in, in the case of Jesus Christ, the sin of the human race was charged to him. 
the sin of all those who would believe in Jesus was charged to Christ. Uh, in, in the case of the believing sinner, the righteousness of God, Christ Jesus himself was put to his account. So again, where we are at is we need to accept what God says about us as being true and then live in light of that truth, independent of how we feel. And that's what's important, another important aspect of this. Because we do live in a day and age where we're highly psychologized. And we talk about feelings all the time. And again, there's nothing bad, per se, about feelings. But we live in a culture, and we've been living in a culture that's been doing this now for decades, where feelings are at least viewed on an equal level as our mind and logic. Uh, maybe above. And so when a person feels depressed, they declare they're depressed. Actually, they may not be. You may feel depressed. The reality is, is you're just sad. You're not depressed. Uh, if a person feels like God doesn't love them, they conclude that God doesn't love them. But feelings can very often be extremely misleading. That's why we have, come to know, we have come to believe in Christ by faith. And our assurance is through faith. I continue to believe what Christ has said, not how I feel. That's why it's always dangerous when someone becomes a believer, when we ask them, once they become a believer, well, how do you feel? I mean, it's okay to do that. But what we want to emphasize is this. The person may say, well, I feel like a burden's been relieved or lifted from my shoulders. And we can rejoice with them over that. And we should. But then we have to stop and remind them that there will be days when they will feel that they still have the burden of sin. And we have to remind them that they don't look back on this moment when they felt it being relieved. No, they look back to what Christ has said and that Christ has forgiven them. That's where they put their faith and trust. They, they can't try to remember, oh yeah, remember that you felt relieved, remember you felt relieved, remember you felt relieved. That's not going to be helpful to you when you're going through times of difficulty or even doubt. We need to look back to Christ and what he's done and what he said and what God has said about it. So we want to make sure then that, that uh, we're not fooled by the way that we feel and we don't live out based under the way that we feel. Remember this, Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So again, it is correct to say that Christ righteousness in his entire course of obedience uh, from the manger to the cross. That's, that's, it was his obedience. And that, that hit, that, we call that sometimes his passive obedience. That's also imputed to me. That's the righteousness of Christ that's imputed to me. So no matter how I feel, that's what I possess. So I, I may have sinned a lot today. You may have sinned a lot today. But you know that you belong to Christ because God has imputed his righteousness to you. You possess that. And your sin can't drive that out. That, that's a phenomenal thing. It's, it, it causes some people to become fearful. And so some, as a result of that, are afraid to talk about these types of things. Because the fear is, is that if we understand this, we'll go out and just sin willfully all the time. I think that most of the time when we sin, maybe always, we do sin willfully. But I don't think we're just going to go out there all the time and do this. We're going to struggle with that. And, and I think we'll, we'll struggle from different sins from time to time, and it'll be less and less, but there's going to be growth in our lives as Christians. And sometimes there's maybe some things we have a hard time getting over. But this, this is not a license to sin. And the Bible never teaches that. 
So again, if we grasp what we're talking about here, we, we should never think again of righteousness as being something that's worked out inside of us. It is and must always be a once-for-all act. It is absolutely unrepeatable uh, and cannot be given to us in any way except by imputation. Only God can do this. Furthermore, this righteousness is both vicarious and infinite. What do we mean by that? Well, a couple things. Number one, it is vicarious in that it was rendered to God in our nature, our human nature. Christ assumed our, our nature and our obligation so that in our stead or in our place, he could do for us what we could not do for ourselves. So to say this is vicarious means that it was done for us, not in us. All right. Secondly, it's also infinite and that it was the righteousness carried out by an infinite person which is the second person of the Godhead, which is Jesus Christ. That's why Colossians 2.9 says, Thus all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form in Christ. So to say righteousness is infinite means it cannot be reduced to an intrahuman experience. It is eternally pleasing in God's sight, fully satisfactory for all of God's just claims against me. So in other words, no matter what claims are made against me, God has a just claim against me as a sinner. But Again, those claims have been fully satisfied by the righteousness of Christ. Remember earlier in Romans 1.17, we read that the righteousness of God is from faith to faith. That is that, that means it is by faith from start to finish. As if he were saying, it is by faith and nothing but faith. That's what that means. So in the first half of Romans, there's, there's not much mentioned uh, about the Holy Spirit. In the second half, the Holy Spirit is the key to living the life of active faith. Uh, so I just want to kind of remember that, that you know, the Holy Spirit appears in Romans chapter 8. So there is a righteousness, which is a faith that is done for us, and the righteousness of life, which is done inside of us. So the righteousness of life that's done inside of us is brought about by the Holy Spirit as we continue to become more holy, as we become sanctified. Uh, we become more like Christ in our lives as Christians. So the line of argument in the book of Romans would then be this. Number one, faith alone is the acknowledgement that the righteousness which God has provided and made known to us in the gospel is all sufficient. And there's just nothing that we can add to it, nothing that must be added to it for me to be saved. Faith does not bring this righteousness into existence, but it confesses its existence. Faith alone means that the righteousness of God's provision is everything necessary for our salvation, and nothing remains to be added to that perfect and finished work. Secondly, faith alone means that the righteousness which God has provided for our salvation is apart from the law, it is apart from the works of the law, it is apart from works. This is referred to again, as I mentioned, as passive righteousness. Precisely because here, all of our efforts, our works, cooperation, and participation, they're shut out. Because it's all done of God. Now, there's what we might call the human side of faith. So, the condemned sinner, that's the non-believer, hears that God has acted for sinners in Christ. We hear the gospel. That God sent Jesus, uh, that God sent the second person of the Trinity to the earth, who took on human form who lived in perpetual, perfect obedience to the Word of God in every way, fulfilling all righteousness. Uh, he was then betrayed by, by human beings. He was rejected by man. And he was crucified. Being crucified, 
God placed on him the sin of all those who would believe. He died. He was buried, paying the penalty in full. Three days later, he was raised from the dead. So the, so the person who's condemned, which is all non-believers, every single person, uh, we hear that God has acted through that on our behalf. And that Christ then is pr providing this perfect righteousness for us, which is in Christ. I hear of the sinless life of Christ. I hear of his bitter sufferings. I hear of his death uh, and that it was for sinners. That God is prepared to count Christ's life and death as, um, that, and, that, as uh, his own if we will accept them. But the sinner is so helpless that he himself cannot even believe. God calls us by his word. He enlightens us by his Holy Spirit. He enables us to believe savingly. So you see this incredible work of God. The divine side of the transaction, which is imputation, Romans 5, verses 18 and 19, says that this righteousness is the righteousness of one, or the obedience of one. Again, the word impute here um, means to reckon or to account. Again, it, doesn't, uh, it does not in itself change the object, but it changes the way the object is regarded. So the believer stands before the bar of God as if all the works and deeds of Christ were his own. They're not my own, but I own them as my own because they were done on my behalf. Um, uh, if, if you are a school teacher and you're teaching a science class and you're going to be sick and I'm substituting for you and you tell me what I must teach the class and, I, and I, so I sub and I do it faithfully, then uh, the next week your kids take the test and there's one part they get wrong, and they say, well, you never taught this to us. Even though you didn't do it, you, you made sure it was done. I was your substitute. So when I taught it, it was as if you were teaching them. And so they are accountable for what I taught them. So you can say, yes, I did teach you that. You could say it, you could say it that way. Um, and so... This righteousness of Christ now belongs to me, uh, and I possess it. So again, back to the word that we used several weeks ago, which is the word justification. Justification, then, is a decree. It is a judgment. It's the verdict of, of the judge, which is God. And he then pronounces me to be just, because the price has been paid. So think about this for a moment. The law demands righteousness. The law demands perfect obedience. The sinner owes the law, which he is incapable of satisfying. I can't keep the law, so I owe the law my death. It, I, I, I should be punished. By faith, the righteousness of Christ, all that the law requires of him, the obedience of Christ, is placed to my account, or to the sinner's account. I am made righteous by imputation. And so God declares me righteous. He doesn't declare me innocent. He declares me righteous. Strictly speaking then, being justified is the result of becoming righteous by faith. That's the incredible gift of salvation. What a, what a fabulous thing that is. Romans chapter 4 verse 5. Again, it's, 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 the, it's one of the key verses to this. He says, And to the one who does not work but trust in him who justifies the ungodly, 
his faith is counted as righteousness. So he already explained what happened to Abraham. He's explained what's going to, what can happen to us. And this here kind of sums it all up for us. That if I trust in God who justifies the ungodly, my trusting in him is counted as righteousness. That's a, it's a great deal, to say the least. So Christianity is positively, posit, positively unique in this fact. It proclaims a perfect, holy, and righteous God who justifies the ungodly through the activity of another. That is why the Reformers do not hesitate to speak of this doctrine in terms of an as-if idea. So what is an as-if idea? Well, it means two things. Number one, the Savior as is treated as if he were a sinner on the cross. Secondly, the believing sinner is treated as if the sinless life and vicarious death of the Savior were his own. That, that is our salvation. We can rejoice the rest of the night in that marvelous truth, knowing that no matter what point in my life I pass on from this world, I'm going to be with the Lord because of all that Christ has done for me. It has been paid for. It is final in every way. It cannot be undone in any way, shape, or form. It's an incredible truth. All Christians do believe that Christ died for the ungodly. And they need to understand and accept that. That God justifies the ungodly solely on the basis of imputed righteousness. Based on the death of Christ for him. The believing sinner can be simultaneously sinful yet righteous. Or simultaneously sinful yet just. That's because of God's great gift to us. There has been and will continue to be a temptation to ground God's verdict of justification on something within us. You know, I believed. I did this. I did that. I've been a good person. We have to just throw all that away. All of it. There's no room for it anywhere um, in, when it comes to our salvation. All, of that are, all those things that we do, we do for God because He has saved us. It's an act of gratitude. But it's not so that we can be anything. So we must always be seen as unique from all the other subjective religions religions and plans and systems. Because all, all the religions are based on works. All of them. Look at them. Read them for yourselves. It's all based on what man can achieve. Whether you're trying to find the truth within yourself or trying to find good on the outside or trying to resolve yourself uh, or change yourself into being something good or whatever. It's all based on your works. All based on trying to make, at least get uh, better works than, than, uh, than the evil you've done. Every single one of them. Christianity stands alone in this truth. It's the only religion which proclaims a salvation based on concrete historical facts, which again is the left die, life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So again, how do we know it's true? It's in the Bible. It's in history. It's fact. It's not based on my feelings. It's not based on feeling I've done better or feeling I've been good enough or feeling that I've, I've done a lot of good works. It's based on facts. And these acts of Christ were outside of my experience. It, it is objective reality. We speak of what Christ has done for us. It, it's, it's, uh, it's not what Christ, it's not, you know, it's not this idea that I imagine that God is doing good for me. No, he's actually done it. And it's provable in that way. So again, human tendency is to always forget these objective facts 
and they gravitate back to being subjective. Back to, well, I know what the Bible says about all that Christ has done for me, but I just feel like something else is missing. Well, your feelings are wrong. Nothing is missing because God has done it all. And so that's, that's what we always go back to. If we fail to see the glory of the mystery of Christ and the gospel, we will always look for an experience higher than the revelation of Jesus Christ crucified. And that's what some people are doing. Even Christians sometimes are looking for another experience or looking for a higher experience. They, they say, well, I really want to feel it. Because some people, when they believe in Christ, maybe many, they don't feel anything. And so we, we think that's a detriment to ourselves. We feel like, oh, if I could just feel it for just a moment, then I'll know. No, you won't know. Because then you'll begin to question your feeling. You say, well, I know I experienced it once. I wonder why it didn't last longer. I wonder why it wasn't as intense. Or I, wasn't, I wonder why when, when I experienced it like, like Timothy over here, he saw a ball of fire when he experienced it. I didn't see a ball of fire. It just never ends. And so the bottom line is it, we need to go back to Christ and what Christ crucified, what he's done for us. Because if we don't, we're doomed. Uh, and, and that's why it's important for us to continue to grow as believers, to grow in our understanding and knowledge of the Bible. So as we place our trust in the revelation of God, uh, our faith is rooted and grounded in truth. And we'll be able to combat these doubts that um, uh, come our way. So we're going to end it there. Uh, we have some more things to talk about concerning this, just to make sure that we're well grounded uh, in, in the gospel and understanding salvation and making sure we have a good grasp of what it is and what it isn't. Uh, a great deal for us to be thankful for. And then also, hopefully, we, we can take these truths and we can be able to answer questions that others may have, whether they're non-believers or believers, and help them to understand really the greatness of God and the goodness of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for Again, the gospel of Jesus Christ and for all you, what you've done. Father, we are again aware that we and everyone else are undeserving in every way of your goodness to us and, and of being saved. We thank you, Father, for saving us. We thank you, Father, of the permanency of that as we have looked at the words that are used in Scripture, the words that you chose to use to help us to understand uh, on every level that we can have a sense of certainty that we now belong to you. And so, Father, we just bow our heads and say thank you for this incredible gift. We ask now, Lord, that you bless us as we bring our time here to a close. We pray that you help each one of us to continue to grow in faith. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.